Let's come to the Lord and pray as we dedicate our tithes and offerings and also as we come to his word. Father, uh, we're thankful uh, for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. You have given us life and breath and everything. You've made us right with you. Um, you've welcomed us into your family that we might receive all the blessings that flow to us in our union with Christ. And so uh, we can't do anything but be grateful for your good gifts. And so we pray that you would help us to be a people who are givers of good gifts, that we would um, be generous people, willing servants, people who love to show off um, and lavish your love upon others. Father, would you use our tithes and offerings um, to strengthen the ministry of your word um, here in this church, in your community, and across the world. And Father, as we come to your word now, uh, make us people who hear uh, that we would receive your word, that we would glory and revel in the fact that we are indeed children of God, and that we would respond by living as your children. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, we will be in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, we'll read verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3, uh, but we'll actually take up the totality of this passage over the course of the next two weeks. Uh, we'll deal with the first couple of verses today and then um, the latter part next week. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, hear the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And together the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, this week, um, somebody in our life group mentioned that they were going to parent-teacher conferences, and that made me realize there really are two kinds of people in the world. Uh, there are those who, as kids, absolutely dreaded parent-teacher conferences, and there are those who, as kids, couldn't wait for their parents to go talk to all of their teachers. I'm just going to let you guess what kind of child I was. By the giggles, I bet you know that I dreaded parent-teacher conferences. And the reason was because I knew myself. Right? I knew my life. And so I couldn't imagine parent-teacher conferences being anything other than one big teacher snitch fest. And so I remember my parents would leave and I would just sit at home. And this may have happened one year of my life, but it feels like every year this is what happened. But they would leave from home and I just, just sat in my living room, just waiting 
right, in silence and the awful experience of the dread and, and fear that I had. And there was really nothing there to comfort me except for the eerie sound of the ticking clock in the silent light, night. It was, it was if, as if this clock on the wall was counting down the moment of my reckoning. And it would click away and click away and click away. And then I would hear the garage door. And that was the moment I knew here it was. And my parents would come in and I would, you know, sheepishly walk up to them and try not to try to play it cool, like everything was fine, but I knew and, and I'd ask them how it went. And the most amazing part about the whole thing was it was never as bad. The report they gave me was never as bad as I imagined it should have been which really only proved one of two things. Either one, my teachers had superhuman patience, or two, my parents had just kind of given up on that parent life. Um, may have been a little bit of both. I don't know. But um, I really could have saved myself a lot of trouble. I really could have saved myself a lot of distress had I only lived in the way that my parents had desired of me. But I didn't. And so those nights were filled with fear and with shame as I awaited the arrival of my parents. And it's this experience, this shameful, fearful experience, that our passage desires for us to avoid. The shame at the coming of Jesus. Verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink from him in shame, at his coming. See, rather than fear and shame before the judge at his coming, we are to have confidence. Now, this word confidence, it's a word that was used in the day and in the political realm. It described the freedom of speech that was given to citizens in various democratic city-states. It was a freedom to speak without fear. It carried the idea of boldness and freedom and openness and courage. And John longs for these little dear children to stand before Jesus, not in shame, but in a bold freedom, to be filled with the joy and wonder before the face of this righteous judge. And the argument here that John is giving to us is not a new one in his letter. We've heard it before. I mean, he's calling the believer to abide in Christ, to remain and to continue with Christ, and to thus live our lives in keeping with our union with Christ. And in doing so, as we do this, the experience of our assurance rises. And he repeats this theme here in verse 29. He says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So he's repeating this theme again and again in this letter. What is new here is he introduces to us a new motivation for our abiding in Christ. He speaks of our familial relationship with God, our being born of God. We are children of our loving Father. And the point is this. Because we have the extravagant love of our Father, we live as children. 
Because we have the extravagant love of our Father, we live as His children. And to be clear, righteous living is not the cause or condition of our new birth, but it is the evidence of it. And this takes us back to the assurance that John spoke of at the beginning of chapter 2 and, and continues to speak of throughout the chapter. And he, he built that argument, believer in Jesus, you have received, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and thus Christ abides in you. You are united to Christ. And because the Spirit is in you, you are empowered to live in step with Christ, to live according to his righteousness. And so, live that way. Live that way. But guess what? John introduces us to something new. He says, the Spirit that has anointed you, that abides in you, that has united you to Christ, is the Spirit of adoption. This was Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery. God is not a taskmaster. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, to, to be ashamed at his coming. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So I'm going to be upfront about the application for today's sermon. Right? Sometimes preachers, we hide this at the end. But I'm just going to be upfront about it. Here it is. To live in the extravagant love of your Father. Live in the extravagant love of of your father. Dwell in it. Make God your father your home, the place in which and from which you live. We'll come back to that. A few years ago, um, our family grew from a family of four to a family of five when we uh, officially added Joe to the Randolph Fam Bam, as my daughter calls it. Um, and Joe, unlike Babygate of 2019, in which in a prayer email I said one of our poor mothers in our congregation gave birth to a 19-pound baby, Joe was, in fact, a 5'11", 175-pound, 26-year-old baby. <laughs> We've known Joe since he was 15 years old, and he officially became a Randolph in 2018 when we adopted him. And just a few days before we were going to court, uh, our youngest son, Riley, came up and, and said, okay, so after the adoption, is Joe going to move into my room? <laughs> and to which his mother said, oh, honey, Joe has his own place. He has his own apartment. He'll, he'll continue to live there. And at that point, Riley was just sort of this disgust and confused look on his face, throws his hands in the air and says, then what are we doing this for? <laughs> It was a sweet moment, and it made me realize uh, that Riley knew that, that being a part of the family was more than mere legal paperwork. It meant real belonging. And for him, this belonging was marked by moving in. 
right? If, if Joe was going to be his brother, it meant late night bro chats. It meant rising up early to beat him to the last bowl of cereal in the box. And it meant all the wrestling matches and the pranks and all the fights in between that time, right? It meant really moving in. And Riley was ready to give up his own space so that Joe could bunk up and be his big brother, If you think about it, Riley's instincts about the nature of family is profound. Because to be a child is life-altering. It is intimate. It is empowering. It's about moving in and truly belonging. And to say that we belong I mean, what strength that gives to us, What's, what, what joy that gives us, what, what, what empowerment that gives to us, What's, what rest that gives to us to truly, truly belong. And, and Joe know, or, or John knows the significance of this because he, he, he moves from, from noting our being born of God at the end of verse 29 to this command in chapter 3, verse 1. The very first word is a command. He says, see, behold, know, to stop and gaze and reflect and glory in the profound reality that not only are we called children of God, but we are indeed children of the living God. And we, we behold, we see, we know, What kind of love this is. Or another translation, you could say, how great a love. The New Testament, in the New Testament, this this language, it implies astonishment and amazement. The original uh, word for this meant of what country or of what region. John Stott says this of this word, the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world, that John wonders what country it may come from. It's a divine country. Something far beyond the loves of this world. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now we hear these words, and they're often connected to the transcendence of God. And that's true. It is true. But have you ever stopped to think about or take a note of what that little word for connects back to. Verses 6 and 7 that I read for our assurance of forgiveness today. Right before says this, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways My ways, declares the Lord. God's mercy, his 
pardon of sinners. His compassion, his love is higher. It is greater. It is from another country, far above the thoughts and the ways and the loves of this world. Behold, how great a love that he has given to us. And he has indeed given it to us. The NIV translates this word given God, as God lavished it upon us. The word just means to give. But the NIV is, is picks up on something because it, it focuses on what it is that is being given. You see, divine love is no ordinary gift. It is the greatest of all gifts. Uh, of all gifts. It is the height and glory of of man's relationship with God. And so divine love is never merely given. It is lavished because the love itself is extravagant. And John says, see this. Behold this. Know this extravagant love that makes us children of God. Now, the father-son relationship is rooted in the Old Testament. It begins with Adam uh, and the genealogy that Luke gave us, the genealogy of Christ. Uh, it ends declaring that, or saying that Adam is the very son of God. And, and what does it mean to be a son? Now, there's a a million ways that we could be talking about this, but it most certainly means to be made in the image or the likeness of one's father. Right? We, we learn this in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, or Adam, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You see, the language of, of being made in the image or the likeness is language of sonship. Right? And to be, to be a son is to be made in the likeness, the image of one's father. And man, we learn from Genesis chapter 1, was made in the image of God. Made as child of God. And this sonship had a purpose. Man was to extend the fatherly care of God across all of creation. As children, man was to speak the word of God and to extend God's will into the created order. As children, man was to express the worship of the whole of creation. As a child, man was to exercise God's rule and represent his sovereign power over all of creation. And by doing this, all of creation would live under the very blessing of the eternal love of God. Man, at creation, had everything he needed because he had the Father. He had the Father's love. 
And this is what makes the fall so tragic. And think about this. What was Satan's temptation? Of the forbidden fruit uh, that God commanded Adam and Eve to not eat, this is what Satan said of it. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You catch that? You will be like God. They were already made in the likeness of God. They were his children. Right? To be like God is to, to know and to love God as the Trinity knew and loved from all of eternity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and man was created and let in on the beauty of this Trinitarian love. This is what Adam and Eve possessed, being fashioned in the very image of God, being made the Son of God. They didn't need to know good and evil because they knew God. They were already like him, sharing in the love that he lavished upon them. And one of the tragic consequences of the fall and their disobedience was that this image of God was wrecked. It was ruined. It was marred by sin. You see, the image of God in man after the fall was more like the ruins of an ancient castle rather than the original glory of the palace in which the king and, king, or the king and queen lived. No longer did man speak the word of God and exercise the will of God in the world. No longer did man worship in truth but loved creation rather than the creator. No longer did man exercise God's gracious fatherly rule but rather sought a glory and a power for our We became a mere shell of what we were made to be. And that has proven to be a tragic consequence. And of course, the greatest consequence of the fall is our alienation from the Father. There's this tragic verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, says this. He, that is God, drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He's driven east of the garden. Now, eastward movement signified movement away from God. That is, by the way, when the tabernacle's built, the entrance into the tabernacle toward the Holy of Holies was supposed to be on the east side because westward movement was, was a movement back toward God. It was, it, it, it was a reversal of the tragic consequence of being driven away from the Father. Man is driven east, away from God, away from the tree of life, away from the very source of of life, to live in alienation, to live as, as strangers, to live in the misery of life apart from the Father. 
And the result of this, this consequence, this alienation, is, is so clear as you continue reading in Genesis. You read in chapter 4 of Cain and Abel. And then you get to chapter 5, the generation of Adam, and you hear this refrain over and over and over again, and he died. 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 This is the life of one separated from the Father, a tragic, tragic consequence. But the love of the Father cannot be extinguished. As we continue reading through the pages of Scripture, we read again and again of the love of the God the Father as he pursues and he defends and he rescues and he cares for his people. In Exodus, we learn that Pharaoh in Egypt sought to destroy the life of God's people. And the Father, he rises up and he defends their cause and, and Yahweh delivers them out of Egypt and calls them my firstborn son. And he frees them from their slavery and he gives them his name and he gives them his presence so that they could live in the joy of their father. And yet, the son again rejects the love of their father. And they do this again and again and again. And the prophets testify to the sad rebellion in, in Isaiah 1, for instance, it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. You see, the story of mankind is the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. Here's the son. He's at home in the fullness of blessing with his father, and he rejects him. He leaves to go to a faraway country to spend his inheritance on what John would describe as the desires of the flesh and the, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And this left this boy absolutely destitute. He was a mere shell of who he was when he was at home with his father. You see, mankind's story, our story is the prodigal story. It's a story marked by our rejection of God's fatherly But again, the extravagant love of the father for his children cannot be extinguished. In due time, God sent Jesus, the eternal son, the perfect image of God. God sent Jesus into the far country of our prodigal sonship to bring us home. 
to redeem us from death and from the sin and, and, and misery that we live in. He, Jesus, restores to us the image of God, recovering our honor and our dignity and our privilege of being the children of the living God. And when he brings us home to the Father, he brings us not as servants who are filled with fear of the master or shame because of our failures when we stand before him, but he brings us home as sons, as daughters, as those whose home it is, the place in which we belong is with the extravagant love of our Father. Now, I said up front that the application is to live in this extravagant love of your Father. For Him, the Father, to be the place in which and from which you live. And it's worth each of us taking a moment to think about what this looks like for us. Consider what it means to live in the extravagant love of the Father, in the way that you understand yourself in relationship to God. Maybe ask the question a different way. What lies do you find yourself telling yourself? God could only love me if. I've just done too much for God to love me. I'm unworthy. Something's too wrong with me to be a child of God. I'm just going to tell you, it is time to take these lies, to kick them in the face, to throw them out the door, and to embrace the extravagant love of God, your Father. And yes, you can kick these lies in the face. It's allowed as a Christian because these lies, the only thing they want to do is to further enslave you into the fear and shame, to further try to draw you away that you would not abide in Christ. They desire to keep you from the freedom that is known in living as a child of God. And as children, we are not like the prodigal son who came crawling back to his father, begging him to just make him a mere servant, but rather we are children. We come to the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ with our heads held high, with an open boldness, not because there's something inherent within ourselves that's beautiful, but because Christ has made us beautiful. He has redeemed the image of, 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 of being a son and a daughter, and we stand in the freedom of God's holy grace. That is how we approach God. That is who you are as a believer in Jesus. The lies are nothing but that. They are lies. Come to your Father, live in the extravagance of his love, and enjoy, enjoy him in Christ Jesus. What does living in and from the extravagant love of the Father mean for your personal life? 
What does it mean for the way in which you live? Sinclair Ferguson said this, doing right is not the way into the kingdom, but it is the way of the kingdom. Or what does it mean for the parts of you that you keep hidden? What does the extravagant love of the Father mean for your 2%? The 2%. You know, that part of you that nobody else gets. The part that you don't tell anyone because you're convinced that it's too big and too scary, that if it came into the light, then it would be, you would be completely be undone. Maybe it's a lie, hidden sin, unfaithfulness, religious pretending, a past experience, something else. And I know that 2% is a scary place, but perhaps rather than being to your ruin, perhaps the exposure of that 2% might take you further into the heart of your heavenly Father where you will truly know what it means to live freely freely as his perfect love casts out fear. What does living in and from the extravagant love of the Father mean for your relationships with others? What does it mean, especially in your relationship to the new family to which we belong in Christ, the church? Here in the church, there is no room for sibling rivalry. Our our love and relationships are to reflect the love of our Father and our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And we have to ask the hard question, is the church just a commodity to us? something we buy, sell, and trade to enhance our individual lives? Or do we see the church as the Father sees the church, his his children? How sweet it is when our love of one another imitates the love of our Father. Because that love is an empowering love. It's a forgiving love. It's a patient love. It's committed and self-denying and hospitable. It's a welcoming love. It's honest, and it's unchanging. It's it's a sweet, sweet thing to know and to live in. There are a myriad of other ways that we could consider what living in this extravagant love of our Father looks like. What it looks like for Him to be the place in which and from which we live. And I want to encourage you this week, spend time thinking about what that would look like for you. And it may bring you to some uncomfortable places and some fearful places, but remember to ask the question boldly because you are indeed a child of your heavenly Father. With him, there is no fear, there is no shame, but in Christ Jesus, there is only his extravagant love, the love of a father. Please pray with me. Father, we, oh, Father, 
We say that word and help us to stop and to see it, to gaze upon it, to enjoy our position before you because we are in Christ Jesus, that we are made children of God. Father, I pray that you would make this something that we that defines us, that we define ourselves as not just servants, but also as a son, as a daughter. That we would live in that, that we would live in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would live from it, that we would abide, that we would continue to live this life of faith that you've given to us, that we would show off your fatherly care to a watching world, that we, uh, that we would love one another and that we would pursue righteousness and, and all these things, that we would indeed speak your word and, and, and extend your will into our lives and the lives around us, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and that we would we would care for one another, the world around us, according to your sovereign and gracious rule. Father, we long for the day in which you appear. We long for this because we are in Christ. We are forgiven because of his life, and his death, and his resurrection. And we anticipate his coming that we might stand as children in him. And so, Father, as we go out from here today, would you empower and strengthen us to live in step uh, with the spirit of adoption as your children. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now receive this as the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.